Welcome back to the podcast, EMS History, Myth, and Media. I'm really grateful that you've chosen to listen to me ramble on about my interest in the history of medicine in general and in emergency medical services in particular. I spent over 30 years working in hospital emergency departments and a few years in the urgent care portion of medical care. This episode covers the history of resuscitation, perhaps the most exciting single aspect of EMS and emergency medicine, the story of resuscitation. Stay tuned. When you think about EMS, one of the images in your head from all the movies and TV shows is a group of EMS or emergency department personnel around a victim lying on the ground or on an ER cart with someone pushing on their chest and someone else yelling, we're losing him, we're losing him. At that point, someone grabs the paddles and yells, clear, clear. And then someone applies the paddles, the victim spasms, and the camera focuses on the monitor, which invariably changes to a normal EKG rhythm. Where does all this come from? Where did we adopt this script across the country in EMS and emergency departments? In this episode, I'm going to try to cover the history of resuscitation. And like a lot of EMS and emergency medicine, the 1950s and 1960s were a considerable influence in our current techniques. Before I start, let me dispel one of the myths of EMS. I plan to do at least one episode of this podcast on the myths, thus my choice of the name, EMS History, Myth, and Media. But this myth jumps out right now. I never, in decades of work in emergency departments and hundreds of resuscitation attempts, I never yelled, nor ever heard anyone yell, we're losing him. It happens repeatedly in media representations, yet not in real life. Those of us who do this routinely know, and all of the team knows, the status of the resuscitation as it progresses. There's no need to yell, no need to tell everyone that it isn't going well. We all know that. I've muttered, come on, come on, to myself under my breath, but I never once yelled during a resuscitation. Well, back to the history of the dramatic, desperate attempts to keep someone from dying when it looks like that's going to happen. In this episode, I'm going to do a pretty much timeline approach, and I'll mention the whole bunch of names important to the history of resuscitation. The timeline basically covers about the past 300 years of medical history. We'll start back with the Bible. The Old Testament describes the resuscitation of a child, and then we jump forward to the Middle Ages where the scientists, physicians Paracelsus and Vesalius described efforts to revive some who were apparently dying. In about 1530, the Swiss physician Paracelsus described the bellows method of putting a bellows into the mouth of a victim, blowing it up in order to inflate the lungs and bellows were used for a few centuries thereafter. We jump forward to around 1700. In 1732, the Scottish surgeon William Tosick employed mouth-to-mouth breathing to resuscitate a suffocated coal miner, and a few years later in 1740, the Academy of Sciences in Paris recommended mouth-to-mouth resuscitation for drowning victims. In around 1745, the first Leydig jar, a capacitor able to store electric 
uh, electrical energy was first discovered. And very shortly after that, people started applying current to animals and people to see what would happen. In 1775, a Danish veterinarian and scientist named Peter Abildegard conducted experiments on animals using electrical shocks. He noted in hens that he could render the hens lifeless with shocks to their head and then revive them with a shock to the chest. Uh, the victim uh, then apparently clucked off into the woods and further follow-up was lost. Later in 1802, the Royal Humane Society of England advocated the use of an electric shock to distinguish, quote, real from apparent death, end quote. Back into the 1700s again, in 1767, Amsterdam formed, quote, Society for the Recovery of Drowned Persons, end quote, which was the first organized effort to respond to sudden death. These people described a progression of methods to attempt to resuscitate the drowned victim. Number one, warm the victim. Number two, position them with their head lower than their body to allow water to exit. Number three, apply pressure to the abdomen. Number four, using the bellows or mouth-to-mouth, -mouth, force air into the lungs. Number five, tickling of the throat. And number six, fumigating by forcing tobacco smoke uh, via the bellows into the mouth or rectum of the victim. And number seven, bloodletting. After the formation of the Society for the Recovery of Drowned Persons, others in Europe also formed similar groups, perhaps the precursors to modern EMS agencies. Of interest in Japan, some similar techniques were described in the 1600s in judo and jujitsu journals. Uh, these techniques were called kapo or kutasu. In around 1788, Dr. Charles Kite in England introduced endotracheal intubation and published, quote, an essay on the recovery of the apparently dead, end quote, in which he also described the resuscitation of a three-year-old girl by a shock to the chest. In 1856, Dr. Marshall Hall advocated repositioning the patient from face up on their to on their side and back flat up on their side again, and later added pressure to the thorax to his technique. In 1858, Henry Sylvester employed a technique of lying the patient on their back with their face up, pulling their arms up over their head, and then putting them back crossed on their chest and pushing on the chest uh, to force exhalation. This method was not very effective, but it was used for about a century until it was disproven in the 1950s by doctors Elam and Safer, who will be mentioned uh, at that point in the timeline. Around this time, in 1868, sternal compression was described, but it was almost a hundred years before this was universally adopted. In 1874, animal research proved the utility of open cardiac massage using squeezing of the heart, then relaxing, squeezing the heart again uh, during chest surgeries in animals. In 1878 in Germany, external chest compression in cats uh, was proven to result in the circulation of blood. 
1891, the German surgeon Friedrich Maas advocated chest compressions in addition to ventilation and reportedly saved two young people. Surprisingly, this combination of chest compressions and ventilation was not adopted for over 50 years later, and open heart massage was the standard during operations. In 1900, of note, in 1924, the American Heart Association was formed at a meeting in Chicago by six cardiologists, and the American Heart Association is associated with our current techniques of resuscitation. In 1933, at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, an electrical engineer by the name of William Cohenhoven, Ph.D., did a bunch of experiments on dogs in which he would uh, defibrillate dogs uh, electrically. And he also used chest compressions to provide circulation until the defibrillation restarted a normal heart rhythm. And over a course of time, he developed both internal and external defibrillation techniques. In 1947, in Cleveland, Ohio, a Dr. Claude Beck performed the first successful use of electrical defibrillation on an exposed human heart during a surgery. In 1957, at Johns Hopkins, they produced their first closed chest defibrillator, which was a cabinet on wheels weighing over 200 pounds, which they could roll to uh, the site where it could be used. During that time in Johns Hopkins, the researchers, Dr. James Elam and the Austrian-born anesthesiologist, Dr. Peter Safer, worked on proving that exhaled air was sufficient Uh, in oxygen to maintain oxygenation in victims using mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. And this was the method that they were advised rather than using some sort of bellows device. Around that same time, Dr. Safer decided that using the external chest compressions and mouth-to-mouth resuscitation could be an effective life-saving technique. And in around 1960, along with another group, they published that combination of chest compressions and mouth-to-mouth breathing, which has ever since been referred to as CPR. Dr. Safer was recruited to the University of Pittsburgh in 1961, where he continued to work until 1999, and he was a leading advocate for CPR, which he was credited with helping to invent. Along with his friend, Dr. Asmund Lairdahl, he and another group invented a universal simulation tool called Resusa-An or Resusa-Annie, and it was the first CPR mannequin. Uh, they also published the first CPR instruction manual. Those of us who started medicine in the 80s, 90s, and even more recently, fondly remember the resuscitation mannequin Resusa Annie. Annie, Annie, are you okay? We would start out uh, in order to establish unresponsiveness. Anyway, it is of note that the face of Resusa Annie has always been the same. In the 1800s, a popular thing was to do a death mask of people uh, after they had died. A plaster cast was done of their face, and one in Paris was done of a young unidentified female drowning victim, and this death mask was the model for the Resusa Annie face. This brings us to the 1970s. In 1972, 
in Seattle, Dr. Leonard Cobb launched Medic 2, which was the first mass, mass citizen training in CPR. Eventually, they trained over 100,000 people. In 1974, the American thoracic surgeon Henry Judah Heimlich described an abdominal thrust technique to dislodge food or foreign bodies from victims' tracheas. This was published in the June 1974 issue of Emergency Medicine, and it became another technique utilized in the early resuscitation attempt in people. In 1975, the American Heart Association published their first textbook of advanced cardiac life support, what to do after those initial chest compression and ventilation techniques, including uh, intratracheal intubation, including uh, the use of drugs and other therapies for advanced cardiac life support. I did not realize until researching this and finding this particular timeline uh, that I took my first ACLS course probably in 76, 77 during my first year of medical school. And so ACLS had only been out for about a year or two when I took my first ACLS course. And I continued to teach and do ACLS for decades thereafter. In 1981, telephone instructions for CPR was distributed to 911 operators. You may recall if you listened to my earlier episode in this podcast that 911 was started in 1968 by AT&T. In 1983, recognizing that the techniques of advanced cardiac life support were not Really specific to the pediatric population, the American Heart Association convened a national conference on pediatric resuscitation to develop guidelines specific to pediatrics. And in 1988, along with the American Academy of Pediatrics, the American Heart Association introduced both pediatric BLS and pediatric advanced life support, or PALS. I'll cover the history of alphabet courses in a separate episode, but I must include now the fact that I attended one of the first four national courses to teach pediatric advanced life support in Kansas City. It was given only to physicians, only emergency physicians, pediatricians, and anesthesiologists, and we were advised after learning pediatric advanced life support to take this technique back to our state's and start teaching it in our states. I remained active in teaching PALS and PALS instructor courses in West Virginia for about 15 years after that. The 1990s saw the development of automatic electronic defibrillators, or AEDs, and they began to be distributed so that the public had access to this life-saving technique of defibrillation. Along with CPR and the Heimlich maneuver for choking victims, these became the mainstay of the public response uh, to people in early resuscitation. This remained pretty much the technique that was performed by the public until the arrival of paramedics and advanced cardiac life support until about 2008. In 2008, the American Heart Association recommended a, quote, hands-only CPR, end quote, They recommended dialing 911, starting compressions on the chest hard and fast, and not using ventilation techniques. 
until an AED could be applied and see if the person could be shocked out of a potentially fatal rhythm. The rhythm was advanced from around 60 beats a minute during the combination ventilation uh, chest compression techniques to a much faster rhythm, which they were recommended using the beats per minute rhythm of the Bee Gees song Stayin' Alive, which incidentally is about 103 beats per minute in case you're wondering. Well, that progression in the timeline brings us pretty much up to the present. Now we have the use of someone notifying 911, find the nearest AED and do hands-only CPR until you put the AED pads on, and either shock or don't shock depending on the voice of the AED. Then, hopefully, paramedics arrive and advanced cardiac life support takes place after that. The progression to advanced cardiac life support by paramedics continues into the emergency department and is followed in successful resuscitations by new post-resuscitation care, including induced hypothermia to preserve brain function. So, from the Old Testament to modern resuscitation methods, people have attempted to snatch people from the jaws of death. I can testify that just about nothing in my career in emergency medicine and EMS quite compares to stopping the dying process in a patient, and no response is as satisfying as a patient talking to me after I've successfully electrically cardioverted them. I apologize to anyone who believed that we actually shout run around, and sometimes throw things in emergency departments. Someone may have yelled, we're losing him in an emergency department, but I never heard it. In reality, we are resuscitation professionals. It's what we do day in and day out. We've done this before, we know what we're doing, and we do it with calm demeanor and expert technique. We don't have to yell. Well, that brings us to the end of another episode of EMS History, Myth, and Media. I again thank you for following me through the discovery of the history of this vital and important branch of medical care. As always, my utmost respect and gratitude to all EMS workers. What a noble calling this is to aid and rescue people in their greatest hour of need. What could be more personally rewarding? Well, thanks for listening, and until the next time, this is Rex Leisure, and keep up your great work.